Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome, everyone, to Inspired by Math. In this podcast series, I interview people who are inspired by math and who are inspiring others. I'm really excited this morning to be interviewing Al Cuoco. He is co-author of this wonderful new book by the MAA, Mathematical Association of America, titled Learning Modern Algebra. And what caught my attention was the subtitle, from early attempts to prove Fermat's last theorem. Welcome, Al. Thank you. Yeah. Glad to be here. Yes, and I and I too am, am really excited to have you here because if you've listened to some of my podcasts and if listeners have have listened to others of my podcasts, you'll realize that I'm not um, somebody who reviews very many textbooks. I I'm much more interested in you know, the inspiration of math and what gets people excited about math enough to you know, dive into a book and, and, and work through it and play with it. Um, but when I got this book from, from the MAA and looked through it, it was like there was something interesting and familiar that caught my attention that made me realize very quickly that this is not an ordinary math textbook. So I thought, okay, I'm going to do a podcast interview with with the co-author of this this textbook. So before I get it, a yeah. little bit into your um, background, let me ask you, because I, I do not want to forget that um, Joseph Rotman is co-author of this book, but he wasn't um, able to be here with us. So can you say a little bit about him and his role in the book? Sure. I mean, <clears throat> excuse me. Um, we we actually met maybe 15 years ago when I, when I visited the University of Illinois, but then we sort of lost touch and reconnected again about five years ago at a conference at the University of Arizona on, um, on the mathematical preparation of teachers. Um, and we started a discussion there about the, the, the role of abstract algebra and how it could be but isn't use, a useful tool for practicing teachers. Um, you know, I've admired George's books for a long time. He's written really, really well-received books in group theory, Galois theory, abstract algebra, and so forth. Um, so we started talking about what an, what an algebra course tailored to pre-service and practicing teachers might look like and how we could include applications that would be meaningful to the profession. And oh, maybe a month or two later, he got in touch with me and said, what do you think about writing a book with, for this kind of a audience? And I said, well, sure, count me in. And so we began working together, basically, just um, writing chapters, trading drafts, doing phone calls maybe once or twice a week, um, arguing a lot, <laughs> and gradually polishing the text. So it's been, it's been quite an experience, and I think we've, we've both enjoyed it. This is great. Very, very good. And I, let's see, you sent me a bio, and there's quite a bit of information in the bio, so I'm not going to read... Um, the whole thing, but but something that struck me is that 
basically you are a curriculum guy and you are also as you as you said you're you're into teaching teachers but you're also you've worked quite a bit um, for a number of years with high school students um right right so so it's so it's like you're spanning all of these worlds you're not just a you're not just into curriculum you're not just a, a math teacher it's it's interesting that you're doing the three of them right yes i mean i i started out when i, when I graduated college teaching high school um, but I always wanted to. This was a long, this was 1969, so it was it was quite a time. Um, and so I had intended to go to graduate school, but didn't. Took some time to teach high school, and then and then went to a summer institute at Bowdoin, um, where they NSS sponsored institute for high school teachers, where I was exposed to some really wonderful mathematicians: Ken Ireland, John Lubin, A. W. Tucker, um, for four summers. And it made me decide to just bite the bullet and go back to graduate school. So I did that in 1976, I think. Um, went to the PhD program at Brandeis and again met some just incredible, incredibly brilliant people that I've stayed in touch with for years. Ralph Greenberg was my advisor, Paul Monsky, and that's where I met Glenn Stevens. We'll talk a little bit about him when we talk about the Ross program. Um, mm-hmm. And um, And then after the PhD, I decided to just go back and teach high school for another decade and then tried, thought about doing something different. So um, went to work at Education Development Center, which was then in Newton, Mass., basically to work with a, a guy I met a long time ago, Paul Goldenberg. And I've been there ever since, working with teachers, writing high school. We have a high school curriculum that's being used by 50,000 kids around the country, um, doing workshops for teachers and working at this Boston University program that's a version of the Ross program. Yes. So that's essentially how I got, how okay. I got into this. Mm-hmm. Yes, we're, we're definitely, we're for sure, definitely, absolutely, we will talk about um, the Ross program because that's what I didn't realize when I picked up this book and started looking at it. There was something that caught my attention, and, and, I, and, I, and we... We will all see, and all of our listeners will, will get the connection. Um, mm-hmm. Right. So in, in your bio, it says that you are the lead author of CME Project, an NSF-funded high school curriculum published by Pearson. And right. recently you served Right, as... that's the curriculum. Mm-hmm. Go ahead. That's the curriculum I, was ta- I, was, um, I, I just mentioned. Yeah, it's a four-year high school program that we've been working on for, gee, close to 20 years now. Very good. And and it says that you are carrying out several professional development streams of work, okay, devoted to the Common Core state standards for mathematics, right? You've talked about that. Um, and you co-direct something called Focus on Mathematics, partnership among universities, school districts, and EDC that has established a community of mathematical practice involving mathematicians, teachers, and mathematics educators. So tell us a little bit about that. Well, this grew out of the the collaboration I've had with Glenn Stevens from BU. Um, So why don't we just back up a bit and talk a little bit about about the Ross program and how that evolved into Focus on Mathematics. Let's let's do it. Go ahead. Perfect. Okay. So let's see. I met... Glenn Stevens, around mathematics, not around education, um, when he was visiting Brandeis just as I was finishing up. Um, but we stayed in touch, and then and 
this was in 1980 or so. And then, and then in 1989, Glenn, who was an alumni of the Ross program at Ohio State, and so was Steve Rosenberg and David Fried, all, of, all at BU and Maji Baruch at, at uh, Syracuse, started in 1989 a version of the Ross program called PROMISE, Program in Mathematics for Young Scientists at BU. Um, and it's the same kind of thing. They use the same problem sets, although they, they edit them a little bit every year. And then a couple of years later, Glenn asked, asked me if I'd be interested in bringing some teachers into the program. And it sounded like a great idea. I mean, it, just the idea of spending six weeks doing nothing but mathematics seemed like a perfect way to help teachers kind of experience what it's like to work as a mathematician. So we started that in 1991. It was very small. But it's been going on now since then. And, um, and it's between 35, 40, maybe 45 teachers every summer come to spend six weeks working through number theory problems all day long. Um, in 2003, we decided to apply to the National Science Foundation for what they call a Math Science Partnership, an MSP, and, that, and we called it Focus on Mathematics. And that's, turned, that's been going on since 2003. It's a partnership between BU, EDC, the University of Massachusetts, and Lowell, and um, seven school districts. And the, the basic idea was to, to build this community of mathematical practice among mathematicians, teachers, and educators. So, for example, the Promise for Teachers program is a, is a central piece of that. Um, some of the teachers in the partnership come every summer to Promise, and some are now counselors in the program. But we also have mathematicians working with teachers after school in what we call study groups. Um, they meet maybe twice a month after school for a couple hours just to work on mathematics. It's, it's something like a math circle, although it's much more driven by the interests of the teachers themselves. So um, focus on mathematics is sort of an ongoing partnership. The funding has ended, but we still keep running these study groups. We have an expo for high school kids to present their work, and um, seminars and colloquia, and of course, Promise for Teachers. So in a way, Promise for Teachers has turned into the centerpiece for this, for this collaborative. That, that that is great, and that, and as you said, that had its roots in the Ross program, which I attended for a couple of summers. I think it was 1979 and 1980, and yep. it was a remarkable program. I have to admit that I was, you know, as a 16 or 17 year old, however old I was then, I was not very mature for the program. Looking back, I wish I had been more mature in my attitude towards mathematics because math had always come easy to me and and I absolutely loved it and then I got thrown into this program I didn't know what I was what, what I was in for and I think if I'm remembering correctly it was an 8 week program at Ohio State University and Arnold Ross when he was alive he was you know a brilliant mathematician um certainly he was a number theoretician and I'm not sure what other branches of math um, he may have studied, um, but he would, so I think it was an eight-week program, five days a week. We would have the morning lecture with Professor Ross, and we studied number theory for those eight weeks. Um, he would lecture on what he would call the discovery method, and just 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 brilliant in 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 lecturing. And then we would have a problem set that we would spend the rest of the day pretty much working on. There would be 20 or 24 problems handwritten, crammed into one side 
of an eight and a half by 11 sheet of paper. And, mm-hmm. and these were not easy. Right, right. Well, that structure is essentially the same as, as what's going on at BU now in the summertime, mm-hmm. except the audience is these very, very advanced high school kids and practicing teachers from, from around our partnership and around the state. Um, but it's the same thing. Glenn gives the morning lecture, and he has this saying that he makes sure that nothing's covered in a lecture until people have struggled with it for three days. And, um, and then a problem set is handed out, and people go off. The teachers go off to a separate room from the kids and just do nothing but work on the problems all day long. Nobody finishes the problem set, or very few people finish the problem set, and that's, the, that's by design. Um, they're looked over by counselors every night, um, handed back the next day. People revise their solutions, revise their approaches, and it goes on like that for six weeks. The, the teachers tell me that they feel like it's drinking from a fire hose. Yeah, yeah, and and I imagine if, if these problem sets are, are at all like the problem sets we worked on, so many of the problems were open-ended so it's not like multiple choice. It's it's not the kind of problem where if you're where if you're good at taking tests, you're you're going to do well because you have to look for patterns. You have to you know generalize from some data. You have to um, do what he called podisip, prove or disprove yeah. and salvage if possible. And I noticed that in your book. I was flipping through the pages the other day. I didn't see it when I first looked at your book, and, and you have some podisip problems. That's right. That's right. Yeah. Um, and, and so, the, I mean, it, the, the, the original problem sets themselves were just a brilliant piece of curriculum design. I mean, uh, an idea would start out in numerical calculations and numerical experiments, and then later on, generalize, and then after that, generalize even further. And so you, there were these threads that you could trace right through the problem sets. And we tried to do this in, in the book as well, and we tried to do it in our high school curriculum, where the, we have this saying that, ex, that um, experience precedes formality. So we give people the experience of experimenting with things and then moving on to more generalization and formalization. But the, the formalization is, is kind of the capstone, not, not the foundation. And so the podocypts are important because... You know, I mean, in real life, you're not you're usually not presented with something and say, prove this. You're, you're presented with a statement or you come up with a statement through an experiment and you have to decide if it's true or false. And if it's false, you don't throw it away. You try to repair it. And, and so that's what this prove or disprove and salvage if possible idea is. Yeah, it's I mean, it, it's an absolutely brilliant idea. And of course, it, it, it makes the, the problem sets much more challenging, but... Also, as you said, it, it makes them more real world and, and more relevant because it it forces the student to engage with the problem. Yeah, and I think it I think it's a really valuable habit to build that when you come up against a brick wall when something doesn't seem to be working, you don't throw it away. You try to you try to go back and add some hypotheses or you know, repair some of the some some of what you're doing and salvage it. You know, Fermat's last theorem is a a perfect example of that. Um, It's probably the best example in the 20th century that, and modern mathematics, I'm sorry, that that, um, there were many attempts to prove it, and the proofs were gradually refined over the years. And, you know, they they saw flaws in the proof, and they tried to repair those. So the original flaws had to do with a lack of unique factorization. They tried to restore that. That led to the whole theory of ideals. 
and it's, it's sort of branched off into into many of the of the ideas in modern mathematics just by trying to fix up these early proofs of Fermat's last theorem. Right. Yes. And as a little bit of an of an aside, and a little bit we're gonna we're gonna jump into the book and 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 talk about it. But I've always been curious. Maybe you have an insight on this. Why is it that you know? I mean, Fermat's last theorem was really a conjecture for some 300 plus years, right? Until Andrew Wiles was it like in 1979 thereabouts? 1990. 95, actually. 95, okay, I'm sorry. Until 1995, it was unproven. It was a conjecture. Why have mathematicians always referred to it as Fermat's last theorem? Well, I mean, I don't know. But one reason might be that that Fermat thought he had a proof of it. And, you know, it's the famous legend that he said, I have a proof of this theorem, but it's it's too long to fit in the margin of my book. He was reading a copy of Diophantus. so for him, it was a theorem because he thought he had a proof, and, and I, that might be the genesis of the name. Okay, yeah, I've I've always been curious about that. I, one argument I read is it was you know a way of honoring Fermat. Uh-huh. By well, saying, that could be yes, well, that we'll call this a theorem, and God, we hope uh-huh. it really is. Right, right. <laughs> I think for him it was, but nobody really knows. Right. I mean, what 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 I have have read is. That it's that it's unlikely that he had a, a proof, and certainly the the very sophisticated machinery that Andrew Wiles used would not have been at all available to Fermat or to anybody in his time. I mean, that that's that's yeah, my I, sense of it. Sure, sure, and it, and it's also likely, although nobody knows this for sure, that the proof that he had in mind had at, that the flaw in the proof had to do with the lack of unique factorization in these these rings of cyclotomic integers, although he didn't think of it that way. Okay. So well, it's, the same, it's the same flaw that, you know, was in the proofs that came after that, that people thought that they had a proof, and then, and then it turned out that um, there was a flaw in the proof, and the flaw always came down to the fact that certain rings don't have unique factorization. Okay. Yeah, it's, you know, to me, it's, it's always been a little bit unsettling that, that, that yes, there is a proof of Fermat's last theorem, but you know, are there more than a handful of people on the planet that can actually verify that proof? And can anybody yeah, right. ver- ver- verify all of it? Yeah, yeah. You know, um, uh, Glenn Stevens and and uh, another mathematician, Gary Cornell, organized a, a conference right after the proof was announced, a, a week long conference at BU, and they try and every. Over the course of the week, they did work through the proof and tried to give the main ideas of it, but it was really heavy going. I have to say, I didn't understand a lot of it. Yeah, yeah, I, yes, I, I haven't um, tried, and I'm sure I wouldn't. I don't have the, you know, the background. Uh, you know, I suppose at age fifty, if I started now and spent the rest of my life, I, I might be able to follow it, but may, but I wouldn't bet on it. Uh huh. Uh, there are some nice expository articles. I don't have them at my fingertips, but there are some nice expository articles that try to get at the main ideas of the proof. One is by this guy, John Stilwell from Australia, and it was in the, it was in the Monthly, the American Mathematical Monthly. Um, I can find I can find the reference and send it to you. And what we tried to do in the book was to give a sense for what the early attempts looked like, um, and give a rather complete description of the proof for exponent three. 
and four, four Famar actually proved it for four. And you mm-hmm. know, I mean, it's a relatively elementary proof. Right. But for three, even for exponent three, it turns out to be this. There are these technical pieces. You can understand the major idea, and you could also understand the technical pieces. But the technical pieces are rather technical. Sure. Okay, so so now now that we've we've sort of dipped our toe in in the waters of what the book is about, tell our listeners um, what is the book about, and 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 who is the audience. Okay, so I think I, I tell a little bit about the history that that Joe and I decided to work on an abstract algebra book that would be aimed at the audience of pre-service and and practicing teachers, but also would be um, I've always felt this that that a an algebra course that took into account the needs of pre-service teachers would actually be a good undergraduate algebra course for all majors. So that's what we wanted to do. And we wanted to, in addition to the content, which is kind of at the intersection of algebra, geometry, and number theory, we wanted to show the power of abstraction and try to make it seem natural because that's, you know, these abstract ideas like, like ring, for example, um, emerged from concrete experience. And we, we wanted to try to paint that picture and give people that experience. Um, let's see, the, 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 the original design, which we carried through through the end, um, first of all, we decided we did not want to start with group theory, the way a lot of abstract algebra courses do, because group theory is pretty remote from, from um, pre-service teacher's experience and also pretty remote from high school mathematics. I mean, there are some examples of groups in high school mathematics, but they're not really faithful to, to what the idea is used, how the idea is used in real mathematics. Um, so groups were going to come near the end in the historical setting of Galois, using them to, to solve algebraic equations. We were going to try to make focus on the structural similarities between integers and polynomials, because those are very close to people's experience. I mean, if you think about it, middle school is about integers, and high school is about polynomials. That's an overgeneralization, but mm-hmm. those are right. sort of the, the, the key objects. Mm-hmm. Um, and we also wanted to, this is from my own high school teaching experience, I found ideas from, from, um, from abstract algebra extremely useful in my own profession but they were never made explicit in any of the books. So we wanted to have these connection sections that made direct connections between the mathematics in the text and the mathematics the teachers would use in their profession. Things like, oh, an analysis, just for background purposes, an analysis of the periods of repeating decimals, how you can tell how 1 over n, what the decimal expansion is going to look like just by the prime factorization of n. Yep, that, or, I, I love that section. Yep, I have, I have experimented with that on my own. So yeah, I love that, that connection section. Yeah, yeah, that was, I mean, um, and we've, I've used that in workshops with teachers and, and they just really love it because it ties up so much of the mathematics that they already use. <coughs> another, another connection we wanted to make was what I call applied mathematics. We wanted to show how abstract algebra could be used, applied to the, to the kinds of things teachers do in their profession. So one of my favorite sections in the book that I've used for a long time is how to use, <clears throat> excuse me, norms from quadratic fields or rational points on conics to make up problems for your high school kids that come out nice. Like, how do you find a <laughs> cubic polynomial that has integer zeros and integer extrema? Or how do you find a, um, a scalene triangle with integer sides that has a 60-degree angle, for example? 
these are all kinds of problems that have cooked up in teachers' rooms around the country. Um, mm-hmm. But it turns out that abstract algebra provides the tools that you need to be able to develop these kinds of problems in a coherent way. So we wanted to make those connections explicit throughout the book, and we tried to do that. Um, I, I mean, another another of my favorites is this connection between um, all over high school and middle school mathematics these days is find a rule that agrees with this table of data. And they usually, you know, mm-hmm. linear functions or quadratic functions or those kinds of things. Right. Um, but uh, the... the the, there's a coherent theory. There's a couple coherent theories about how to do that, how to find a polynomial of lowest degree that agrees with a table of data, and it's Lagrange interpolation. Well, there's also another problem that shows up all over middle and high school mathematics that has to do with, you know, the remainder when I divide my age by 5 is 3, and when I divide it by 7, it's 2, and when I divide it by 11, it's 1. How old am I? Those kinds of things. That's the Chinese remainder theorem. China, yes, I was going to say Chinese remainder theorem, yep. Yeah, well, it turns out that those two theorems are the same theorem. Lagrange interpolation and the Chinese remainder theorem are the same thing. It's just they're in different rings. So you change the spectrum, you change the ring, and, and even the proof goes through. So we tried to make that, we, make, we have in one of the connections section, why Lagrange interpolation is the same thing as the Chinese remainder theorem. And so there's, there, there are other things like that. I'm sure if you've looked through the book, you've seen some of those things. But um, that, So the, the idea was to, to delay group theory to show how it actually showed up near the end of the book to make explicit connections to the, the mathematics that teachers use in their profession, and also to develop a, a text that was more exploratory than didactic so that um, ideas are previewed in problem sets before they're brought to closure in the, in the text itself. Okay, so and so one of the audiences for the book are high school teachers, but obviously another audience are, are high school students. Yes. Well, in the connection sections, we, we yeah, I mean, I, I, some of this mathematics has been used with high school students, but really what we intended was to make this an undergraduate text, a, or a graduate text for professional development for practicing teachers. So we didn't have high school students in mind exactly, but some of the mathematics, for example, is a, is a section in there on cryptography, has been used with high school students and has been quite successful. Um, I used to use, in our high school algebra text, for example, we do do Lagrange interpolation and try just in, the, in a very, very elementary way to make the connection between it and the Chinese remainder theorem. So, yeah, these ideas do show up in high school, but our primary audience were teachers and people preparing to be teachers. Right. It's, yeah, I mean, I, I wish that I had learned this stuff in the normal high school curriculum as opposed to going off for the summer and you know, have, having gotten it in a very condensed and intense way, because this way of thinking of you know open-ended exploration and rigorous thinking and 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 proofs and salvaging proofs and and, and everything you've got in your book, boy, I wish that you know that, that that high school students got some serious exposure to that because it's a very different way of looking at mathematics than you know the drill and and drill and kill and you know all these other um techniques that just just get kids to walk away from this stuff and saying you know it's it's not relevant it's not meaningful it's not fun right exactly yep i mean it 
we, I, again, uh, we tried to do that in our high school CME project, um, and there, there are middle school curricula like that that we've developed too, but but they're not as widespread as the main mainstream commercial texts that you're talking about. You're right. Yeah, okay. And and I'm also interested, um, this, is, this is going to be a naive question, but I will I'll put myself on the spot and, and, and ask, what what do you see as the difference between modern algebra and number theory? Because when you and I were talking on the phone, um, you know, whenever it was, a month or two ago before setting up this this interview, I said, oh, this is a great number theory book. And then you reminded me, it's like, no, 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 this is a, a, an algebra book. And I'm going, oh, yeah, that's right. But there's so much well, yeah, I mean, that they have in common. That, that's right. I mean, a lot of that has to do with the fact that we decided to start out with integers. Um, so number theory is, um, is about sort of the arithmetic properties. It starts out with the arithmetic properties of integers, very much like in the Ross problem sets. Um, where, where abstract algebra picks up, I think, is um, when you make the abstractions to reasoning about the structure of systems rather than about the structure of individual systems. So talking about the properties of rings, for example, where you're not talking about any particular ring, so that when you prove an example, when you prove a theorem about rings, you prove it for every particular ring, um, like integers or polynomials or you know matrices or anything like that. Um, so I think that, that maybe I'm wrong, and, and and Joe might even disagree with me, but I think that the difference is that um, that abstract algebra is about the structural properties of algebraic structure, uh, algebraic systems, like rings and fields and algebras and those kinds of things. Whereas number theory seems to me to be a lot more applied. Those ideas are applied to specific systems, like like rings of polynomials or rings of integers and those kinds of things. Roots of unity and so forth. Okay, but but okay. But, but it's, a, it's a fuzzy it's a fuzzy line, and when we've given talks about the book, lots of people say that the first two or three chapters are what we cover in our number theory course. Right, and I would I would certainly say there's a tremendous amount of number theory in Fermat's last theorem. Absolutely, well, yes. Yes, absolutely, so absolutely right. right. Yes, right. okay, okay. But the arithmetic, the, the number theory itself. That's a good example because the number theory itself is. Um, about arithmetic, but it's about arithmetic, at least in the book, the, the, the way we cover these proofs, the, it's about arithmetic in rings of cyclotomic integers rather than ordinary integers. So we do a lot with Gaussian integers and what we call Eisenstein integers, and then rings of roots of unity and that kind of thing. It's number theory, but it's number theory in different systems. Okay. All right. And you know, and I also wanted to make the, the point that, that may, may not be obvious to you know, to, to a lot of folks, but there, there is something very special about number theory, modern algebra, whatever you want to call it, that makes it accessible to bright students who don't have a deep background in in mathematics. Um, I don't know if you have any any thoughts about that. <clears throat> yeah, I, actually, I think it's not just bright students. I think it's about everyone. Um, and, you know, in my own high school teaching, I taught all kinds of classes, and, and what you just said is true, I think, for just about everyone. <clears throat> Excuse me. And one of the reasons, or a couple of reasons, one is that number theory and algebra are examples of what we call low-threshold, high-ceiling. Anybody can get started. You don't need much of a background. You know, you, if you can count, you can start thinking about adding integers and primes and those kinds of things. Um, but yet, you quickly get into deep water, so it's got stuff that will challenge the most 
advanced students. There are other things like that, by the way, besides number theory and algebra, like combinatorics or, or geometry. But number theory and algebra are good examples of, of this easy entry, and then it, you can push it pretty far. Um, the other thing I like about, about number theory and algebra is that it's constructive in the sense that insights can emerge from numerical experiments, our algebraic experiments. Um, so in our high school program, we ask kids, for example, which integers are a difference of two squares? Or even more difficult, which integers are a sum of two squares? That's open to experiment, right? I mean, you can, you, can, you, can write, you can start doing computations, and you can make tables, and you can look for regularity in the data and that kind of thing. Now, another example that we use with a computer algebra system is take the polynomials x squared minus 1, x cubed minus 1, x to the fourth minus 1, and so forth, x to the n minus 1, and factor them over the integers. And how does the number of factors, the number of irreducible factors over the integers, vary as a function of the exponent? So, you know, x squared minus 1 has two factors. x cubed minus 1 also has two factors. x to the fourth minus 1 has three factors, and so forth. Um, these are things you can experiment with, and you don't need any background at all to sort of start gathering data and doing computation. Yes, you know it's. You know, yeah. This is great. This this reminds me of every now and then I'll run into some interesting, you know, math problem. Usually a famous unsolved math problem that is simple enough for for a child to start to experiment with, but hard enough that professional mathematicians can't solve it. Yeah, that's exactly right. That's exactly right. You know, even even in this question of um, repeating decimals, for example, um, there are unsolved problems. Like, no one knows um, if there are infinitely many primes for which the decimal expansion is as big as it can possibly be. That's a famous, I think it goes back to Gauss, even. Oh, wow. Okay. Well, was, wasn't aware uh, of that one. Okay. Um, yeah, and then there's also, you know, there's just just the... The elegance and delight of the results. And I'm thinking, for example, like this thing we just talked about, the um, the structural similarity between Lagrange interpolation and the Chinese remainder theorem. That's just something that grabs you. Or I, I remember back in, uh, I think I read this in Wiles' algebraic number theory book, that, um, like for example, the, the the way the way a prime decomposes in in the Gaussian integers is directly parallel to the way x squared plus 1 factors modulo that prime. Okay. Mm -hmm. And it's the same and it and it's the same thing for other rings as well. The way the way a prime factors in the roots of, in in the ring of cube roots of unity is directly connected to how x squared plus x plus 1 factors modulo that prime. So you end up with these beautiful sort of previews of deep deep theories like class field theory that you can you can just sort of begin to see by doing numerical experiments. And when you do see them, I remember that one in particular just blew me away when I first saw it. That the decomposition of a prime in a, in a, in a field of, that contains the root of a polynomial is connected to how that polynomial factors module of that prime. Yes, that, 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 does, sound, that, that does sound kind of mind-blowing. Yeah, it's really gorgeous. So, so, so related to that, let me ask you um, th th this question. When... I was at the Ross program. Professor Ross very much discouraged people from going to the computer center um, uh -huh. to, to, to do anything, probably because he, he figured, and, and I'm sure he was right, that we would all play computer games. Now, this was in the late 70s, early 80s. 
Um, right. The computer center had you know, teletypes, and it probably even had punch cards at at that uh-huh. point. So so you know so we were not playing video games. If if anything, you know, we were playing adventure or you know some very text based game that's you know boring to most kids by um, by anybody's standards today. But sure. What I'm curious about is, and we, and and I, I suppose there were computer algebra systems back then. There were things like Maxima, right, um, right. You know, back then, and now we have Mathematica and and the open source Sage software and a number of other. Systems. Oh yeah, I mean, they exist on handhelds on calculators, computer algebra systems. Right. Yes, that, that, that's right. But what I'm what I'm curious about, and and, and hey, maybe. Maybe there's another book in this for um, for you. Is I have not seen anybody talk before you about the idea of using a computer algebra system. And I worked for for Wolfram Research for um, very short stint a few years back. Actually worked for Conrad um, Wolfram, one of the founders, um, uh-huh. for his computerbasedmath.org project. Okay. And so, so I got a you know, fair amount of exposure to, to Mathematica, and, and, and I'm curious about the possibility of, of students using these CAS tools to do investigation of things that would be very onerous to do by hand. At some point, you know, factoring polynomials just gets really tedious. Right, right, right. right. And, but so, you know, has anybody done you know, a book that guides students in exploration of, of these questions with computers? Well, yes and no. I mean, um, let's see. First of all, in Promise, there's actually a difference between how the teachers work and how the kids work. The kids don't use calculators or computers for the most part, although some of them do in their advanced research projects. You know, Glenn has this saying, don't let the calculator have all the fun. There's a, there's a lot to be gained <laughs> There's a lot to be gained from sort of um, feeling in your gut the result of hand calculations. Uh, that's, that's eased a bit with the teachers. The teachers do use calculators and sometimes use computer algebra systems. Um, that's just because it's become so much a part of what they do. You know, they're, they're, they're just so used to using these kind of technological tools. So there's that. Um, Back in 1990, I wrote a book published by MIT Press called Investigations in Algebra that actually used the logo programming language um, to investigate some topics in, in number theory and algebra for high school students. It actually came from the work that I did with some kids at, at my high school. We were in high school in Massachusetts um, in a course that we called independent study. So they would, they would build computational models of mathematical objects. Um, in our high school series, we do use computer algebra systems and calculators and dynamic geometry environments and so forth. And, um, and then we have to make sure that we, because this technology is not so wide, widely available, we have to, you know, provide unplugged teacher notes so the teachers can use these things, for example, with a spreadsheet rather than with a CAS. Uh, it's, not, it's not necessary to use it, but it certainly is an enhancement. So like, for example, um, when we do Lagrange interpolation in Algebra 2, you don't want to, do, you know, if you know what Lagrange interpolation is, you have a, this, this product of all these binomial factors, and multiplying them up by hand doesn't tell you much. So what you want to do is remove the computational overhead. The, the way we think about it, 
at, at EDC anyway, is that, that we use this kind of technology, especially CIS systems, to certainly reduce computational overhead when you need to, but also to perform, perform experiments with algebraic objects the way you'd use a calculator to, express, to experiment with numbers. So for example, the good example is this. How many factors does x to the n minus 1 have over the integers? Um, you want to generate a lot of data for that first before you start to make conjectures, and uh, a CAS is ideal for that. And then the other thing um, that we use the CAS for is to build computational models of algebraic objects that have no faithful physical counterpart. I'm thinking, for example, in the, in the abstract algebra book with Joe, we spend a lot of time going over the, the, the basic idea that, um, that you can f construct a field in which a polynomial has a root by taking the coefficient field and reducing modulo that polynomial. So in, in simple terms, you can construct the complex numbers by taking polynomials with real coefficients and reducing them modulo x squared plus 1. That's, that's a tough idea, and it's usually considered intractable for, for high school kids and for many undergraduates. But you can build a computational model of that system. Just like I can build a computational model of the integers mod n, I can build a computational model of polynomials with real coefficients, modulo x squared plus 1, and lo and behold, it acts just like the complex numbers. So you sort of built the complex numbers the way you'd build a, a, a model in a physics lab, except you're building it on a computer. That's a long-winded answer to say that, yes, there are lots of examples. Um, there's a whole group of high school teachers and undergraduate faculty in the Chicago area that runs a conference every year called, um, I forget the exact name of it, but it's, it's, it's something to do with computer algebra systems. And they talk about the, how they're using computer algebra systems in high school and undergraduate mathematics. Sorry, that's a long-winded answer. Oh, no, no, I have, no I'm, I'm, I'm soaking it up. I'm, yeah. no, I'm, I'm, I'm really loving it. I'm, you know, my, yeah, my only little, little piece of response here is that um, Glenn Stevens, I'm, I'm, I'm I, I, I'm still a little bit curious as, as to why he really shuns away from letting students use, you know, computer algebra systems at all. I mean, the way I, I think about it is, you know, if you gave me two five-digit numbers to, to multiply together, it's like, I know that algorithm really well. I could do it just fine, but why bother? You know, for, at, at, at some point, you, once you have developed a certain amount of grounding in whatever the objects are that you are manipulating and the, the system that you're trying to understand, you know, once you're good enough at multiplying those five-digit numbers, I think there, there does come the, the point where you say, why bother? Well, yeah, I, and I, I, what I'm about to say, I'm pretty sure Glenn would agree with. If the point of a calculation is to get a numerical answer to a numerical problem, then all tools are good, including calculators and computers. Um, but if the point of a numerical calculation is to lead you to some insight about the structure of the underlying system, then the calculator can get in the way. So a good example is I want to figure out um, the period of the repeating decimal for one-seventh. So one way to do that is to do use long division and divide seven into one. Now I can certainly type one-seventh into a calculator or a CAS and get the get the decimal expansion. And if I do that enough times for different denominators, I can probably figure out that there's some regularity here, and I can maybe even come up with some conjectures. But the hand calculation actually helps you understand why those conjectures are true. 
that you're, you're going to start a repeat when you get a remainder of one again. And if you do that out, you'll see that you're going to get a remainder of one when you have a power of 10 that leaves a remainder of one mod seven, that kind of thing. Yeah. So okay. it, it's that, a different. It's, yeah. Go ahead. No, I, I was going to say that that is actually a really excellent example. And you start thinking about the fact that, well, seven is a prime and, you know, why are you, you know, you know, why is there a cycle yeah, seven right. and, and things like that, that, that you're that's not right. going to get any insight at all with the calculator. Yeah, that's right. So if the point is to get a numerical answer to a numerical problem, then sure. There's no sense in slugging it all out. But if the, if the point is to get some insight into what's actually going on, then I think you do, the hand calculation can help you do that better than, better than just gathering data on with the technology. Now, there are people who are going to disagree with that. They're saying, well, why not just generate lots and lots of, of examples, look at the data, make some conjectures, and then go back and see if you can prove them. That just seems inefficient to me, where the insight can actually lie in the calculations themselves. It's a very different way of, I think, of relating to mathematics. Yes, I mean, I agree. If, if you use a computer to get a pile of data, and then go back and, and do the mathematics, it somehow, it wouldn't give me the same thrill of getting that yeah, aha think, moment by looking right. at, at, at a small amount of data by hand. That's right. That's exactly right. Yeah. yeah you, you, see the, you see the result actually emerge in front of, in front of your eyes. And, um, and, and if you're habituated to looking for that kind of thing. By the way, that's the other thing. There's a difference between, you know, I've seen kids who can work a page of adding and subtracting fractions and then walk away and have learned nothing. Um, but if you, but that's different from taking a look at an orchestrated sequence of calculations and being in the habit of looking for some regularity in what you're doing. Not just regularity in the data, but regularity in the process itself. Yes. Yep. So, so I, I, I am curious, do, do you think that there is, that, that there is hope? Maybe you can help to, you know, create a movement of taking the principles that are in this modern learning modern algebra book and bringing them into high school, but ideally even into middle school. You know, things like rigorous thinking and making connections to relevant things and and thinking about open ended problems and podiceps and all of these things, all of the secret sauce that, that, that makes this book, I would love to see this in, in middle schools and high schools. It's not yeah, there. Yeah, and I, well, I mean, it's there in pockets. So I like to think that we've created middle school and high school programs. The CME project, and we have another curriculum for middle school called Transition to Algebra, um, that do exactly that. that. That, you know, we have the design principles like experience before formality, and textured emphasis so that you really emphasize, you de-emphasize convention and emphasize substance. There's a whole list of things like that that are in the design of it. And I also have some high hope because the Common Core State Standards is calling for exactly this kind of thing. They have the goals for understanding rather than just goals for performance. And they have these standards, what they call the Standards for Mathematical Practice. There are eight standards that help kids develop that if kids meet these standards, there are things like making use of structure, or seeking regularity in repeated actions, or you know using tools strategically, those kinds of things. 
Um, but if kids actually meet those standards, they'll have developed the habits of mind of a proficient user of, of mathematics. Um, so I think that there is hope, and there, and there are certainly pockets of teachers around the country who are dedicated to developing this kind of thing. There's a, um, I mean, one of the best examples is, do you know about Math for America? Um, I have heard of it, but I don't know anything about it. Tell me. Yeah, well, I mean, it's it's shouted in New York, and it's still that's the biggest installation. Um, it's a, it's a community of teachers who are dedicated to you know becoming lifelong learners of mathematics and to developing programs for their kids that um, that do exactly the kinds of things that you're talking about that develop mathematical ways of thinking and that stress reasoning and that define expertise as what you can figure out rather than what you know those kinds of things uh, and this you know this several hundred teachers in New York. We have a Math for America in Boston. There's a Math for America in L.A. And the, and the basic idea here is that we want to professionalize pre-college teaching in a way that um, puts teachers in charge of their own professional development and helps teachers develop the kinds of thinking in their kids that you're talking about here. Yeah, I mean, I... So, yes. Yes. I mean, I... There's, I, there's hope. There's hope. Good, good. And, you know, and I love this conversation... Because the point that you just made is is not obvious, I think, to a lot of people, although it sounds real obvious to say it, is math is really a way of thinking. You know, ki right. you know kids going to school and, and they're told to do arithmetic, you know, and then, you know, algebra, trigonometry, maybe pre-calculus or whatever. But I wonder how many kids really, really get at a deep level that it really is about a way of thinking. And once you have a particular way of thinking – you can approach all different branches of mathematics and have have success in them because you've got a framework yep. for for creating structures, understanding the material, um, you know, doing proofs, thinking rigorously, that sort of thing. That's exactly right. That's exactly right. I mean, um, you know, I'm I know that you always ask people um, they have any ideas about why kids what what advice to give to parents if they if they struggle in mathematics what you just said i think is the best advice that you can give people is that rather than worrying about mastering specific things one by one as if they were all different develop these mathematical habits of mind that'll allow you to approach all kinds of problems and that are really general purpose and will serve you and and, and this certainly you don't have to master all this massive individual facts you can master a few general purpose tools and that'll help you figure things out if you don't have them memorized. Well, all right. So let, let me push you a little bit on to, to go further with that answer. If if the if the parent isn't fortunate enough to have their student be in one of the programs that you're involved with, how do they help their kid to develop those habits of mind? Well, yeah. I mean. There's a next book. I would, yeah, right, right. I, I mean, I try to look for the roots of the, of the struggle. There are these kind of common notions that that kids struggle with mathematics because, for example, they're not fluent in basic fluent in basic arithmetic, and there's something to that. And there's this notion that kids struggle in mathematics because because school mathematics is, you know, all about memorization and meaningless formulas and those kinds of, and there's something to that too. But I do think that it's more nuanced than that. It's, it's, it has to do with what the whole game is about. 
and that, that it's about figuring things out rather than amassing facts. So that, see, I mean, like, like for example, the argument that, that um, it's all about practicing calculations. You can learn an awful lot by practicing calculations and by, by practicing with formulas. The, uh, an example that I use all the time is, you know, there's this algorithm for figuring out how many positive factors a positive integer has. You factor it into prime powers. You add one to each of the exponents, and you multiply them together, and that's how many positive factors it has. Well, that's the, that's the phi um, formula, right? Yeah, that's right. Yeah. Um, and I found it most effective to not explain why that's true at all. Just start with it and, and have people practice it a bit. And then they begin to see, by doing the hand calculations in this case, why that has why that has to be true. So that so that the meaning, I think Wittgenstein said that the meaning evolves from the use, and so it's not just as black and white that that practicing and doing doing orchestrated calculations, those can lead to lots of insight. So it's not as simple as simply eliminating all the practice and all the calculations. And it's also true that, for example, there are kids who are fluent in calculations and still struggle with algebra and still struggle with geometry and those kinds of things. Um, so there's no easy end. I, I think, for example, um, I have two colleagues at EDC, Paul Goldenberg and June Mark, are working on a program that they call Transition to Algebra that helps kids realize that they have it in their heads already, the ability to figure things out. And they do it not through standard um, middle school mathematics. They do it through puzzles and games and those kinds of things very, very carefully chosen so that it helps kids do things like build abstraction and look for regularity in data. Um, as far as advice to give to parents, I, I think the thing to do is to look for things like this and to try to help your, your child understand that he or she really does have what it takes to succeed in mathematics, but they just have to step back and try to make sense of what it is, rather than trying to, to sort of just get through it. Okay, all right. I, I mean, I'll, I'll I'll take that. I'm I mean, it, it's it's a good thing. I mean, that I'm still I'm left uneasy with your answer, but but it, it's it's a good thing because I think it means that there's more for all of us to explore about how to get there. And maybe there's well, another I mean, book. Yeah, what, what, yeah. What makes you uneasy about it? Is if if I were a parent, I don't know what I would do to what I would concretely do to help my child to develop these habits of mind. I see. I see. I mean, it sounds like it's it's not an easy thing to do, but I would I would get involved in in the school's choice of curricular and make sure that I'm trying to help them choose adopt something that. Um, helps kids develop these habits in mind. I would invest more in teacher professional development so the teachers can, can develop this kind of thinking for themselves um, and, you know, pressure the school committees and so forth to put money into professional development and supporting teachers in their profession rather than piling on the tests and, and, and trying to uh, weed out what they call the, the, the teachers whose kids aren't performing. Um, okay. I think most teachers really want to... Most kids, Teachers really want their kids to succeed, and uh, with the right tools, they can do it. But the resources have to be there, and the resources, especially in terms of supporting teachers in their own mathematical learning. 
Right. Okay. And and can you think of any ways that a parent could work one-on-one with a child or let's say a homeschooling parent if you know what kinds of of projects could a parent take on with their their child that would help them to think mathematically that's what i'm getting at is it's like right, right, yes right. they can lobby in their schools they can get involved with curriculum development but but it's going to be a, you know very very few parents that will go that far so right, so so right. what can the masses do To work individually with their kids. Yes. Um, I'm I'm thinking that what what's and you know I don't have these things at my fingertips except for the ones that we produce at EDC um, to to look for resources that they can use that contain projects. So uh, I mean here here is an example. Um, we have a website called Making Mathematics, and I, you know I hate to keep pushing the stuff that we do at work, but we have a website called Making Mathematics that that contains. Oh, a collection of projects for kids to work on. Um, that they're not—they're not the kind of thing you can you can finish in an hour. They're the kind of thing that you know. Originally, these were designed to be collaborations between mathematicians and high school kids who would work together online to work on some of these projects. Um, so one of them has to do with this famous combinatorial problem of of a simplex lock. How many combinations are there on a simplex lock? Which is one of these locks. You see a lot in dormitories and airports. It's got five buttons, and there's some rules that go with it. Mm-hmm. Another, uh, there's, a prob- there's a probability problem. What's the, pro- what's the probability that if I pick two integers at random, they have no common factor, that kind of thing? Um, that's, yeah, so, so that's a great problem, yes. Yeah, so that they're, uh, um, they're, the projects are, are posted on the website. The hints are posted on the website. There are solutions where we have them posted on the website. Um, and there are notes for teachers, or in this case, parents, about how to approach these kinds of things. There are resources like that. I'm just not saying that they're unique to EDC. There are resources like that all over the country um, that parents should look for, that they can work with their kids. I guess what I'm saying is it's not so much remediation as it is to sort of jump-starting their ability to think in mathematical ways. Right, and, and the way I look at it is if these problems are are challenging enough and and they're the kinds sounds like they're the kinds of problems where the parent probably only needs to be one step ahead of the child yeah or, or even on the same page as the child or and do it perfect. together or even on the same page the same level then they can work on the exploration together and you know that's a novel thing i've i've never talked to any um anyone on on this podcast series you know who 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 gave the idea of hey you know, how about if if the parent is not more advanced than the child, and they literally are sitting at the kitchen table together, trying to figure things out? Yep. Yeah, trying to figure things out. You know, isn't that a different isn't that a different model of doing math than you know the the tutor student or you know all all of the models where you know the the teacher knows everything and opens up the student's head and pours in the knowledge. Oh, for sure. Yeah, I mean, it's actually much more faithful to the way mathematics is really done. Um, think, for example, of of um, people studying for a PhD in mathematics and they're working with their advisors. Lots of times it's just a collaborative effort. They're trying to figure things out together. So it's, yep. it's, it's, really the way things, it's really the way things are done. That's right, but we don't, right, we don't think about it 
that way certainly not in the you know in, in the less advanced you know in in primary school secondary school that that level we don't think of math as this collaborative um, effort you know maybe the internet will make it more and more so but it, yeah I mean I love the idea of of people getting together either virtually or or physically at the kitchen table and and saying you know what do you think of this problem you know and, and just bouncing ideas and, and doing it um, collaboratively now yeah. Does the Promise program allow or encourage kids to work together on problems? I, I can't remember if the Ross program encouraged that or or sort of funneled kids into spending a bunch of time working on these problems on their own. I, I think it does both. I, I mean, I can tell you what happens with the teachers, because that's where I spend most of my time in this hour. Um, the teachers sit together at tables of maybe five to seven teachers, and uh, it's not stylized group work where everybody has to share everything that pops into their head. What people usually do is they work on things on their own for a while, and I think that's really important to let things percolate. And then they try to explain what it is that they're struggling with or what it is they understand to someone else. And then a discussion starts to, to happen, and you can actually see um, ideas evolving through the collaboration. It's like... I try to explain something to you, but I don't really understand what I'm saying. It's kind of half-baked, so you pick at it and, to, and try to get me to be more precise, and between the two of us, we start to come up with some kind of an insight. That kind of thing, I think, is, is really, a really good skill for teachers to have because that's what happens in classrooms all the time. If kids come up with half-baked ideas that contain a germ of something important and a real skill in, in teaching mathematics is to be able to pick at that and sort of capitalize on what the kid is trying to say and uh, make it more precise. So that happens a lot in, in the Promise for Teachers program. So there, there's group work of that kind where they're sort of using each other to kind of fine-tune their own ideas. Yeah, and I, it, you know, and I, you know, as maybe I'm getting a little philosophical here, but I think as a, as a human species, we are social creatures, and there is something very powerful about, you know, the, the sum is greater than, you know, the whole is greater than the, than the parts and, you know, that, that kind of thing, the sum of the parts kind of thing. There is something magical about people getting together, tribes of like-minded people getting together to, to do mathematics. Right, that's right. But, I mean, we don't want to turn it into a stylized cartoon of what you of that insight so that there are some some proponents of group work that have people just never working by themselves, just always talking to other people and trying to come up with the ideas. And I, I find that really frustrating. Uh, I think in the math, a lot of mathematics is done alone. <laughs> and, then, and then you come together with other people to try to explain what it is you're trying to do or explain what it is you've discovered or help, ask for help to kind of um, fine-tune what it is you're trying, your insight. So it's... It's not a stylized thing where everything has to be done in a group, especially in mathematics, where a lot of it has to be done um, alone before you can trot it out for public comment. Yeah, I, yes, I, I agree. Thinking of my own experience in solving math problems, if and I have led some math circles, if the first time I ever thought about a problem was in a math circle, it would not be the same as having ruminated on it on my own for a good you know, for however long it took, and then come Absolutely. to the math circle right. and try to refine the ideas. I, I completely agree. Yeah, yeah. 
And so that's what we try to do in Problems for Teachers, and that's what we, we try to do in our curriculum as well. Very good. So, so we're getting ready to wind down here, but I, I do want to ask you a couple of more questions before, before I let you go. Um, mm -hmm. One thing that we didn't talk about about your book is the, you know, the historical thread that, that runs right. through the book, right? The, the early attempts to prove Fermat's last theorem. What, what is your sense of the importance of history in mathematics? Well, I mean, they're the obvious things, that it shows that it's an evolving discipline that people have struggled with for a long time. Um, and it and it shows how, for example, in 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 the early attempts to prove Fermat's last theorem, people built off of each other's ideas and tried to refine the flaws and the proofs. I think that's an important message, especially for people who are studying to be teachers, that these ideas don't just sort of drop out of the blue, already made. They are they evolve and they are gradually refined over time. But then there are also, well, for example. There's this folklore in high school that the complex numbers were invented to find a number whose square root is minus one. And that's simply just not the way it happened. Complex numbers mm -hmm. evolved as tools to solve cubic equations. And it's one of these things where they came up with a method for solving cubic equations that involved taking square roots of negative numbers. But in the end, those square roots of negative numbers went away. So you can have a cubic equation with real roots like one, two, and five. And in, the, in applying their algorithm, you had to take square roots of negative numbers to come up with those roots. And in fact, those, those so-called imaginary quantities went away in the end. That's a really important piece of background for teachers. Not that they want to present exactly what I just said to their kids, but at least they can give a somewhat historically faithful idea of of why it took so long for people to understand what complex numbers were and to represent them geometrically and those kinds of things. So you can ask kids, you can try to develop questions for kids that will lead them to this idea that sometimes if you make believe something exists, you can use it as a tool to get a solution and then it goes away in the end and you're back to where you were in the real world. I think Hadamard said that the, the shortest path between two problems and the real numbers passes through the complex domain. So that you know, I had never heard that that that, that um, explanation of of the complex numbers. That's that's a very sort of subtle, abstract point that you can develop something to help you to solve a problem, and then at the end, that that thing goes away. That's that's, that's yeah. I mean, it it does seem to show up though quite a bit. So, for example, even um, for little kids, I can imagine. I can't think of one off the top of my head a problem that I state in whole numbers and that have an answer in whole numbers, but to get to that answer, I have to use something equivalent to fractions. So I go up, do this thing with these strange creatures, and then they go away in the end. And it's exactly the same with solving, solving cubic equations, that um, you have a method for solving them that's going to produce the roots, but along the way, you have to sort of hold your nose and deal with these imaginary quantities, and then they disappear. I think that there are other examples huh. of that. I can't think of any right now, but um, that, to me, is a really valuable story for teachers to understand. It was certainly valuable in my own teaching. It, it changed the way I thought about complex numbers and made it, made it seem to the kids less 
That's arbitrary. You know, why would you want to solve x squared plus 1 equals 0 if it doesn't exist in the first place? You know, that you have me very intrigued. I'm going to go on to, like, math, um, math, I think, Stack Overflow. You know, there's a whole community of these Stack Overflow sure, sure. sites. And I think there's yeah. a Math Overflow site where people ask and answer interesting math questions. I think I'm going to throw the question out there, giving your example of the, the you know using complex numbers to solve you know to find roots of cubic equations and see if people can come up with other examples of these intermediate things that you have to work with that then go away yeah it's, yeah that'd be interesting to do yep it's i mean it's it's it's, it's another one of these mind-blowing ideas because you know i've never ever considered you know the, the the role of complex numbers in 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 such a way that they're interesting. Okay, all right. You, you've given me you've given me a lot to think about. Yeah, I, I have to say that in 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 the book with Joe, that was one of the things that we worked on the hardest. Um, that whole section on Renaissance mathematics and the and the emergence of complex numbers. We were really trying to do a good job conveying conveying the spirit of what actually happened. Okay, well, I'm gonna I'm gonna go find that section in your book, and I'm gonna quote a little piece of it for for Math Overflow and see see if I can get a discussion going. I think it'll be a fascinating discussion. Oh, I'd love to hear what happens too. Please let me know. Yeah, yeah, I'll I'll send you a link to it once once I get it um, going. Okay, I, then the, great. The, and so this has been a delightful interview, and I and so the last question I have. For you, I mean, you've already asked the the last last question about um, advice to give a child, so I'm not going to ask that one again. But um, is there a next book or project for you? Um, well, there are certain certain kind of things in the back of our mind. Um, let's see, Joe and I. Joe is is giving a, or I just finished giving a um, a series of lectures some of which were taken from the book, um, to a group of senior citizens in, at the University of Illinois. And we're thinking of, um, he's thinking of putting putting that together in a book, and we might work on it together. So that's one thing. Um, mm -hmm. Another thing is, back in 1972, I think, I took a course, it was at Bowdoin, from the late Ken Ireland, um, who wrote absolutely one of the most beautiful books and algebra and number theory that I've ever seen, and it was a, it was a course basically of what, what what Ken's idea was to take the things that live in the folklore of high school mathematics, like you can't trisect a sixty degree angle with the with a straight edge and compass, or the fundamental theorem of algebra, or the fundamental theorem of arithmetic, or um, any any of the, the you know there's no solution to the quintic equation with radicals, and the the, the course that he laid out over the course of six weeks was to develop the mathematics you needed to understand that. E is transcendental was another one. Um, I've got the notes from that, and I've been in touch over the years with his wife, and I would like to turn that into a book sometime because I think that would be a really useful, another useful resource for people who are teachers. So those are two books in the works. In terms of projects, my colleagues and I are just finishing up um, a linear algebra course for high school kids which I'm really pleased with. It's, it's the development of, um, you know, I, my colleagues and I at the high school where I taught, taught a linear algebra course to high school kids for 20 years. And I'm convinced that it's a high school course even more so than calculus. So we're in the midst of 
putting the final touches on that. That's one project. And um, let's see. Glenn and I are thinking, I mean, we're, we're, we're always working on, on sort of building on the idea of promise for teachers. So the next thing that we're thinking about doing is, um, you know, we, we, there are these projects around the country, like the Park City Math Institute that has a course every summer for teachers that's actually designed by the alumni of the Promise program. There's the Math for America uh, seminars that are running around the country. There's Promise for Teachers. There's all kinds of things that are co-designed with teachers to develop the mathematics that they use in their professions. And I'd really like to develop something along the lines of a more formal graduate program for teachers that's co-designed with teachers and that treats the kind of mathematics that foster the cracks in both mathematics departments and in teacher education courses. So those things are enough to keep going for a while. Yeah, so I, I think you are going to have enough to keep going for a while, absolutely. Well, it has been absolutely delightful to to have this um, phone conversation with you. I, I really appreciate um, your time, your your passion, the, the contributions you're making to, to teachers and to students and to changing the way that we all think about mathematics, the, the habits of mind that you talk about. I think it's all great. That's great. I've enjoyed this a lot. Thank you. I yes. hope I haven't talked too much. No, 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 no. This, this, this has been, been great. If you can talk ten times more than I do, then, then I'm always very happy. So there you have it, folks. Al Cuoco, inspired by math.